Hi, everyone. <laughs> How are you guys? This is great. I am I'm so amazed at what God is doing in this, in this church. Um, I was here, I don't know, it was like seven, eight years ago or something. Um, I used to be a pastor in Hawaii, suffering for Jesus. And um, Matt invited me to come out and share, and it was awesome. But just to see what's happened over the years and how God is growing this community and using this community. It's phenomenal. I just got to see your building too. Oh my goodness. You guys are so lucky. And you're lucky to have such an amazing pastor, Matt. Um, I've known Matt for a while. Did you know we were missionaries together in Vanuatu? You've all heard Vanuatu stories, I assume, right? (laughs) I might share one today. Um, but yeah, I, I, we shared a hut together, and uh, you get to know someone really well when you share a hut with that person. And I can like, tell you, like, Matt is such a man of integrity, loves the Lord, is such an incredible Bible teacher, um, one of the best teachers I know. And so it was like an honor for us to do this swap. Like Westside, they're super lucky today. You guys got the, the short end of the deal. Uh, you're stuck with me for this gathering, but um, thank you, thank you for the honor of coming. And um, yeah, so I wrote this book. And I wrote it because there was a time in my life where it felt like my faith was failing and uh, almost actually became an atheist. In chapters three and four, I tell that story. And after going through that journey, I'm just like so passionate now about wanting to reach people and share with people who are going through times where it feels like their faith is failing too. Because I really believe, as you saw in that video with Bob Goff, Bob did the forward of the book. It's amazing. If you just read the forward, like that's good enough. Um, But you go through times and it's hard, it's excruciating, it's painful, but doubt can also be redeemed. Doubt can actually be something, if we know how to respond to it, that can lead us into a deeper, richer, more relationship with him. So that's what we're going to unpack today. Typically, kind of my style up at Westside, up in Portland. Um, it's interesting pastoring in Portland, where the riots come from and the kale. Um, is, uh, typically, what I do is I go through books of the Bible. Uh, but today's different. Matt said, hey, come down, talk about your book and such. So we're going to start in Jude 22. That'll be our springboard to unpack this topic of doubt. And I say Jude 22 because there's only one chapter in Jude. Jude verse 22, and I think we're going to throw it on the screen as well. And we've been doing this at all the gatherings, and it's kind of cool the way you guys do it. We have four gatherings up at Westside, but they're a little more spaced out. Um, Here, it's like back to back to back, but there's no gathering after this one. So I have like seven hours with you guys. It's going to be fun. Um, So let's start in Jude 22. And what I would love to do is uh, the eight, we or what was it, 845.9, the nine gathering, we um, read it together, and it was cool. And same with the last one, we read it together. But I think you guys could be 10 times louder. So let's just read this like we mean it on the count of three, okay? One, two, three. Be merciful to those who doubt. I know there's a lot of people who would read that verse and right off the bat, they have a hard time relating to it because they look at their own walk or their own version of faith and it's like, well, I've always believed. I've never really gone through a time of questioning or doubting or having uncertainty. You know the kinds of people I'm talking about. Um, Maybe there are people in your life who are in this space and it seems like they've been a Christian their whole life, literally. It was like they were singing Hillsong in their mother's womb, right? Writing Yahweh on the walls. They came out speaking in tongues and it's like they've never looked back since. And 
if that's your faith, honestly, I'm like super envious. Like, that's awesome. That's really cool. That's your story. But I think for most of us, doubt is kind of part of our story. Doubt is actually, I would argue, what it means to be human. There's this philosopher, Michael Novak, and he said that doubt is not so much a dividing line that separates people into different camps as it is a razor's edge which runs through every soul. Doubt then is part of the complicated, enigmatic, beautiful mess of what it means to be human. Doubt, it's that moment, as happened to me recently, when you go to a memorial service of a friend and you find yourself just racked with questions. Why? This person was too young. And what about their family? And it doesn't make sense. And your, your heart breaks. And, and you're confronted with deep and thorny questions of, God, why, why would you do this? I don't understand. Doubt is the moment when you're in a relationship and your husband betrays you or walks out on you. And you wonder, God, where are you? You said you would never leave me or forsake me. Why would you allow such a thing to happen. Doubt is the time when maybe you're praying for months or even years and you hear nothing but crickets in return. Doubt is maybe when you're a part of a church community. And you guys know this. If you've been a part of any church for any amount of time, you're going to see brokenness and you're going to see flaws and no church is perfect. And there's going to be all kinds of issues. And the deeper you get into ministry, you're like, wow, it's just filled with beautiful, broken people. And sometimes when you see stuff like that, or even at a national level, we've seen this lately, where high-profile leaders and megachurch pastors and making terrible decisions or moral failure, and that can shake your faith. Like, is this really true? Like, you see these leaders or churches and doing these things, and, and you wonder, God, can I really trust what I've been given in this story? I talked to a guy not too long ago up in Portland, and I invited him out to church, and he's like, Dom, I don't, I don't want to go to church. And I asked him, why not? And he said, and it's, we've all heard this answer. He said, because it's so full of hypocrites. And my answer was, well, there's always room for one more. <laughs> right? <laughs> Come join us. Be a part of the mess. We're, we're all part of this gawky, weird, dysfunctional, beautiful family called the body of Jesus. But sometimes being a part of such a body, it can, it can create doubts. Doubt is the moment when maybe you're reading scripture and <laughs> maybe you're going through the Bible in a year. I know some of you are. And, and you start in Genesis and it's mostly fast moving and there's cool stories. And then you get to Exodus and that's kind of cool too. And you can always watch the movie. And then you get to Leviticus and you're like, Okay, parts of it seem weird or graphic or violent or bloody or all these sacrifices. And, and you begin to wonder and wrestle, like, why is this here? And God, I don't understand this. And you come across verses that honestly just seem at first read really bizarre. Thou shalt not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And you're like, dang it. And you take the goat out of the pot and you put it back outside, right? How many read through the Bible plans have died the death of Leviticus? And, and I, even as a pastor, I've talked to Matt about this, where I'll come across ver parts of the Bible, verses in the Bible, and I don't get this. I don't understand what happened to the Canaanites. I don't know this, this piece of theology I, I wrestle with. We've, we've all been in this space, and if not, just wait, where sooner or later, that the faith that you have and the trust that you have is going to be unsettled in some way, some tragedy, some sickness, some divorce, some unemployment, verses in the Bible, you name it, the silence of God, the brokenness of the world, and you find yourself asking why. 
And it's not just because of our own journey and the things that we go through. I would argue that we experience doubt now more than any other time because of the cultural moment in which we find ourselves in. We breathe the secondhand smoke of doubt where all around us, the cross pressures of culture and media and just the zeitgeist of this moment is constantly reinforcing us to walk away from our faith and put more faith in materialism or consumerism or pluralism. Um, There's this author, his name is Charles Taylor. He wrote a book called A Secular Age. It's huge and it's massive, but really, really interesting. And in A Secular Age, he's like, we are now disenchanted. It's an interesting word, disenchantment. And what he means by that is in, in the secular age, it's been drained of belief in God, drained of belief in miracles, drained in belief of the supernatural. And instead, we've replaced our belief in God with a hypermaterialism. But what hypermaterialism has done is only exasperated a deep and profound sense of nostalgia and loneliness. So we have more than ever, but we're more lonely than ever. And it's because we don't know what to do with our doubts. So I was talking to another pastor, and he's like, man, we're so post-Christian right now. It's getting harder and harder and harder to be a light and to be a follower of Jesus. And he kept saying post-Christian. And that's one way of looking at it. But I also think that post-Christian can be (laughs) pre-revival. And I believe if we know how to engage with issues of doubt and faith, that we can be on the precipice of something new and beautiful that God wants to do in this cultural moment, in this generation. Uh, As you look at the stats, they're absolutely devastating and heartbreaking right now. I'll share a few with you. According to a recent Pew survey, the number of Americans who say that they experience doubt about God has increased 15% in the last 10 years. Two-thirds of people who identify as Christian struggle with doubt. Just think about that, two-thirds. And Gen Z, which is the generation after the millennials, is considered the least Christian generation in our nation's history. I think the author James K.A. Smith said it best. He said, we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. When we go through a time of doubt, as I did, as I know many of you have, or you're in that space right now, typically we're given two options and neither one is good. (laughs) Option one is to demonize our doubt. That is, because of certain faith traditions or church communities we've been a part of, we automatically assume that doubt is an evil thing or it's a bad thing. And so what we do is when we have hard, thorny questions, we suppress them. (laughs) We push them out of our minds. We pretend it's not there. We slap on the mask and we, we say the Christianese and we pretend that everything's okay. But that's one of the worst things we can do because suppressed doubt has a propensity to reemerge only in a form way more toxic and volatile than before. Doubt's greatest strength is secrecy. It's not until we drag it into the light and confront it head on that our faith can actually begin to grow. And for years, this was my perception of doubt. I grew up in a home where the first half of my childhood was super broken. My dad was an alcoholic and drugs and all kinds of stuff. Then at the age of 10, our whole family, within a year period, we became followers of Jesus. But the pendulum went, as so often can happen, went way extreme to like a severe form of legalism. So it's like this whiplash from like party, brokenness, alcohol abuse to now like super hardcore legalism. 
And so growing up, I kind of had this perception of doubt that doubt is some evil thing. It's a bad thing. And I had questions about childhood, questions about things I'd seen and experienced and, and questions about the Bible, but I didn't know what to do with them. I suppressed them. I pushed them down. And the reason that many people do that is because I think it's theological, actually. People assume that doubt is the same as unbelief. But obviously it's not, because Jude verse 22 says what? Be merciful to those who doubt. So doubt must be something different. And when you begin to peel back the layers, that's exactly what you find. If you're a note taker, you may want to jot this down. Um, the word doubt in the Greek language in the New Testament is the word diakrino. Uh, can I hear you say diakrino? And it means to separate or to be torn. Now, this is fascinating. Think James, you know, the man who doubts. It's like the wave of the sea. You're kind of torn. You vacillate. In Latin, it's the word dubitare, which comes from a word meaning two. So when a person doubts, they are literally in two minds. They're torn between two opposing points of view. And it's fascinating when you do cultural studies and you look back at anthropology, for thousands of years, people have had this perception of doubt. Um, for example, the Greeks, thousands of years ago, they define doubt as, quote, a tearing of the mind. Um, you know how in ancient Chinese, they have word pictures for, for their letters? The word doubt in ancient Chinese is a picture of a man with a foot in two separate boats. That's not going to end well, right? In Peru, they define doubt as having two thoughts. In Guatemala, doubt is a person whose heart is made two. So, so doubt then, according to the New Testament, is that moment when you're torn, where you have beliefs and identity and scripture and, and, and doctrine that you've been taught from your church or your parents or college or whatever, but now something happens in your life, cancer or bankruptcy or there, there's some addiction that you're wrestling through, and now you feel torn in two between what you hope is true and now you don't know if it really is. Now, unbelief in the New Testament is a totally different word. Um, it's the word apostia. Uh, let me hear you say apostia. And apostia means an unwillingness to believe. So think Mark chapter 5. Jesus had to leave a village. Why? Because of their apostia. They had no interest in learning from Jesus. Doubt then is saying, I don't know what's right, but I really want to find out. Unbelief says, I don't care about what's right. Doubt is saying, I'm going to pursue the truth wherever it may lead. Unbelief is when you're content set in your ways with a lie. Doubt is searching for the truth. Unbelief is willfully choosing the darkness. So when my wife and I um, moved away from Hawaii, and I tell this story in the book, um, we went to Oxford, and I was doing this degree there, and you know the physicist uh, Stephen Hawking. Um, he's, he's died now. Um, but while he was alive, he was a strong atheist. And I'm sure his mind has changed since then. Um, and he wrote this article. I think it was for The Guardian. And he was just bashing Christianity. And at one point, you could look it up online. At one point in this article, Stephen Hawking said, Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. They then went to John Lennox, who was a professor of mine, brilliant guy, loves Jesus, and passionate about his faith. And they said, look, your colleague, Stephen Hawking, just said that 
that Christianity is a fairy story for those afraid of the dark. What do you have to say? And without even thinking, John Lennox is like, no, atheism is a fairy story for those afraid of the light. <laughs> you see, unbelief is that moment when you say, I'm set in my ways. There's no evidence you can give me that's going to change my mind. Doubt, on the other hand, says, ah, I'm torn, I'm struggling, and I want to know. Just think of a river. I, I like to see doubt as a river. You have faith on one side, on one bank. You have unbelief on the other bank. But doubt is this neutral space. It can lead you towards faith, or it can lead you towards unbelief. It all depends what you do with it. Doubt in and of itself, it's neutral. It's like a spiritual Switzerland. And so we need to know how to respond. We need to know what to do with it. Because if we're not careful, doubt can actually be a destructive force in our life. But if we know how to respond, doubt can actually be redemptive and like life-giving. Which leads me to a, a second thing. One option that people have when they wrestle through their doubts is demonize. The other one, and I think it's just as dangerous, is to idolize their doubts. What do I mean by this? Well, I think this is a growing thing right now um, in our cultural moment with podcasts and books by so-called progressive Christians where we're encouraged to deconstruct our faith, um, where we're told, hey, is the Bible really true? Can you really trust God? Did Jesus really have to die? And as people now deconstruct their faith piece by piece by piece, what you find is that deconstruction at a certain level, I think, can be healthy if it's a rearranging of the furniture and you're passionate about actually pursuing the truth. But deconstruction can only take you so far because if you keep deconstructing, pretty soon there's nothing left to live in or to stand on. If we deconstructed this building, taking apart the roof and the walls and the foundation, pretty soon we're, no, we're left with nothing. A friend of mine, he went down this path. He started listening to these podcasts. And I remember having these conversations with him. And he's like, I don't believe in the resurrection anymore. And I don't know, I don't think the Bible's the word of a God anymore. And I don't know what I think about church anymore. He stopped going to church piece by piece. His faith was being deconstructed. Until now, he's virtually an agnostic. He's like, I, I don't know what I believe anymore. Any two-year-old can tear up a room, but it takes real wisdom to learn how to live in the tension of an unresolved faith. And this is where deconstruction for the sake of deconstruction can actually be incredibly harmful if you're not building your faith on the rock of who Jesus actually is. And demonizing your faith can be incredibly harmful because you're not being honest with God and with others. So what's the answer? Well, I think the answer is you wrestle with your doubts. You bring them to God. You pray. You ask the hard questions. You study. You learn. You grow. You share with others. And in the process, as you wrestle through your doubts for days or months or even years, your friendship with God can become more vulnerable and gritty and alive. And this is what I love about the Bible. This is the great irony, I think, a paradox of the Bible is that those who wrote the Bible, they had deep and difficult questions. I, I think of the first luchador, uh, Jacob, who wrestled with God, if you're a fan of Nacho Libre, right? And in the process of wrestling, it was hard, it was difficult, it was agonizing, but 
He encountered the presence of God in a whole new way, and his nature, his name was changed, or Moses, up on the mountain, Sinai. He had questions about God's justice. Why would you destroy these people? God, I don't think that's right. And as he wrestled with God in the process, he saw the glory of God. Or Sarah, at the age of 65, God's like, you're going to have a son. She's like, you're kidding. I'm way too old. And my husband isn't a spring chicken either. Like, there's no way this is going to happen. And yet in the wrestling, what happened is something was born inside of her. Or Habakkuk. Did you know the name Habakkuk literally means he who wrestles with God? And you read Habakkuk chapter one, and he just lets the emotion pour out of him. He's like, I don't understand, God, why you're allowing evil people to prosper. I don't understand why this is happening to our nation. Where are you? And in the midst of those doubts and questions, you know what Habakkuk does? He didn't suppress them. He didn't idolize them. He wrestled. He went up on his mountain. He said, I'm going up to my tower. And God, I will not leave until you show up. That is what it means to wrestle with your doubts, to be in that place where you're saying, I'm not leaving here until, Lord, you begin to speak and you begin to reveal your answers. I'm not just going to be content to sit in my doubts unresolved. I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to hash it out. Think the apostle Paul. Paul said, I have a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan to buffet me. Now, there's all kinds of speculation as to what that messenger from Satan was. I read one commentary. He's like, that messenger from Satan was Satan. It was a spiritual attack. Someone else said, no, it was his eyesight. He had a physical condition. And someone else, I've actually read this in a commentary. He said, no, the messenger from Satan to buffet him was his (laughs) mother-in-law. He actually said that. Like, wow. Okay, whatever it was. Paul said, I'm being afflicted. This is painful. This is hard. I'm I'm torn. God, take it away. And over and over again, he prayed until God said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. What if in the midst of your doubts and unresolved questions, you're going to discover a richer, more beautiful, more authentic version of grace? You're going to experience the presence of God in ways you never have before. Or think of Asaph. This is worth writing down if you're a note taker. Psalm 73, it begins with the beautiful assertion that God is good. It says, truly God is good. And many of us know that verse. Uh, We sing songs around the goodness of God. But what many people don't realize is starting in verse two, he begins to deconstruct that. He's like, I have questions. I don't understand. Why is this happening? And in verse two, right after saying, God, you're good, he then says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. That's what it feels like when you doubt. It feels like a spiritual vertigo. You don't know what to trust. You don't know which way is true. Wrestling with our doubts then, it's not the easiest option, but it is the best option. But it's incredibly disorienting. Os Guinness, he said, doubting God is devastating. For when trust and dependence turn into doubt, it is as if the sun is eclipsed. The compass needle wavers without a north. And the very earth that was so solid moves as in an earthquake. Have you ever experienced that? I'm seeing some nodding heads. Have you ever been in that place where it feels like a spiritual earthquake? And I think what makes doubt so hard is not because it's just challenging a view of theology or challenging what you're taught about God at church or challenging what your parents told you 
what makes doubt so hard is that it can feel like your relationship with God is fracturing. It's a deeply emotional experience. Doubt can actually feel like a betrayal of trust. Have you ever been in a relationship with someone and you thought you knew them? (laughs) And then maybe someone you're dating or worse yet, someone you're married to and something comes out about their life, what they're up to, or something from their past, some dark secret, and you're like, I had no idea. Why didn't you tell me this years before? And you sit in that space and you're wondering, do I really know this person? Can I really trust this person? And doubt at its worst can feel that way where where part of you is like Asaph saying, I thought you were good. I thought I could cling to you. I, I thought these verses were true. I thought what I was told by my pastor was legit. But cancer, bankruptcy, adultery, hurt, pain, loss. And now I'm wondering, God, who are you? Are you really there? Have you ever experienced that kind of betrayal in a relationship? My, my grandma, she's an amazing woman. Um, she's going to turn 97 in just a couple of weeks. Crazy. And she was born in England, and she has an accent, which is like a beautiful combination of the, the queen of England meets the asparagus from VeggieTales. <laughs> it's amazing. And so now at the age of 97, you know, her eyesight's pretty much gone. Her hearing isn't very good at all. And so when someone called her up a few years ago, pretending to be me, it was a scammer. She believed him. And the scammer, he, he says, hey, grandma, I need your help. And she's like, oh, of course, sweetie. So good to hear from you. What, what do you need? And the scammer's like, grandma, I'm in Quebec right now, which kind of surprised her because she knew I was living in Portland at the time. And grandma, I was at a party last night. I was at this wedding and I got drunk and then I got arrested on my way home and now I'm in prison and I need you to send $2,500 to this account as soon as possible. Well, you can imagine that almost ended my, my grandma's long and beautiful life right there. Like she's shocked. And she's like, really? And she's asking this guy questions and she can't believe it. Like, oh my goodness. And she says, okay, before I do anything, I need to call your mom. So she hangs up the phone and she calls my mom and she tells my mom, your son is in Quebec in a prison cell because he got drunk last night. Meanwhile, I'm a pastor at Westside of Jesus Church. Literally at that moment, while all this is going down, I was meeting with someone, some counseling meeting or whatever, praying with someone. And so my mom hears all of this. And I get out of the meeting and I check my phone and there's nine voicemails from my mom. Voicemail number one, Dominic, I am so ashamed of you. Voicemail number two, how could you do this? Why would you get drunk? I'm like, what? (laughs) Voicemail number three, and what were you doing in Quebec anyway? Voicemail number four, you need to come back to Jesus as soon as possible. (laughs) Voicemail number five, she's sharing scripture with me, the Romans road. Voicemail number six, Dominic, I've called all these churches and I put you on the prayer chain. (laughs) So if you got that, now you know. (laughs) So I'm like listening to this, like what is going on? This is so bizarre. And so I finally, I listened to all and I put the pieces together and I realized what had happened. Now here's the worst part of the story. I called up my mom And I pretended as if it were true. (laughs) The ultimate prank. She answers, 
Dominic, what, what's going on? How could you do this? I'm like, Mom, I've just been under a lot of stress right now at ministry. You know, I pastor in Portland of all places. And I just, yeah, I just couldn't help it. And last night I did all that. And she's like, no, you, and she's like literally trying to evangelize me and bring me back to faith. And then I'm like, no, but here's the, here's the bright side, Mom. Now I have a prison ministry. <laughs> it's a great thing. So I finally told her the truth a year later. Um, no, just kidding. I told her right then. <laughs> But I could just hear in her voice. And you know what was so surprising to me? It kind of disordered, just troubling, actually, is that she knows me pretty much better than anyone else. And she hears a story. Hey, your son is drunk in, in Quebec in prison. And she's like, oh, yeah, that's true, of course. Like, really? Is there really something in me where you think that's actually possible? Have you ever been in that space where... A relationship is fractured or broken because you hear something about them or something happens. You're like, I don't know if I can trust you. This is where doubt is so difficult because it feels like a breaking, a fissure in your relationship with God and you don't know where to turn. C.S. Lewis, um, and any C.S. Lewis fans in the house? Okay. I love C.S. Lewis. Uh, he, he talks about this in his book, A Grief Observed. Actually, I'm curious. Show of hands. How many of you have read A Grief Observed? Okay. Like three of us? Okay. Awesome. Check it out if you want to be depressed. Because um, <laughs> it is actually a depressing book. But don't stop halfway. Keep reading the book because it gets super redemptive and hopeful. C.S. Lewis wrote A Grief Observed after his wife, Joy, died. Um, They were only married for a few short years, yet Lewis describes them as the happiest years of his life. When she died of cancer, he was absolutely heartbroken and devastated. And he wrote this book, A Grief Observed, shortly after her death to just pour out his emotion. And and if you've read it, you know that there's no answers necessarily, just raw and ragged questions. And he pours out his grief in real time. It's basically what the Hebrews called a lament. Lots of questions. He's like, God, I I prayed for healing. I, I came to the door expecting you to greet me, but you just slam the door in my face. It's like what you read in the book of Psalms, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me? Those kinds of questions. And as you read the book, C.S. Lewis, as he's wrestling with his grief, he, he then says, God, my view of you is being shattered. He said, that's what hurt the most because I had a perception of you, a view of you, and now it's being shattered But then you turn the page, you keep reading the book, and he calls God the great iconoclast because C.S. Lewis, as he wrestles through his doubt, he understood he had made an image of God in his mind that had become an idol. And what the grief and doubt had done is shatter that image and caused it to be reborn into something else entirely. It deepened his faith. He didn't abandon his faith He didn't idolize his doubt. He didn't suppress the questions, but he was honest with them. He grappled with them. And in the process, he discovered a relationship with God that was more vibrant and beautiful than ever before. In his book, Till We Have Faces, C.S. Lewis said this, I now know, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Before your face, questions die away. What other answer would suffice? In other words, God, I've spent years wrestling and wandering and doubting, and I've come to the conclusion that what my heart really aches for, 
What my heart really longs for is not simple bullet point answers or even resolution to all my doubts. Lewis says, what my heart really longs for is you. You yourself are the answer. And that, this is so important because what this shows us is that our doubts can be redeemed. The deep faith awaits for us on the other side of agonizing doubt. That if we make the decision in the midst of the tension, the pain, the loss, the grief, the hopelessness, the confusion, not to demonize and suppress, nor to idolize and run, but instead to wrestle with our doubts, that act of wrestling can lead us into a relationship with God that we've never had before. Christopher Wright, pastor in England, he said, It seems to me that the older I get, the less I think I really understand God, which is not to say that I don't love and trust him. On the contrary, as life goes on, my love and trust grow deeper. In other words, he believes not in spite of his doubt, but he believes because of his doubt. It's like any relationship. I think this is true, that questions and even uncertainty in a relationship can be the spark and the fire that leads it into deeper understanding of the other. So I think of my wife, Elisa. We've been married now for 19 years. I know a lot about my wife. Um, She's a morning person. She loves to cook. She loves to paint. She used to be a cat person, and then she repented. (laughs) and we got a golden doodle. Um, I know a lot about her, but there's also some stuff I don't know. We've been married 19 years, and she'll still surprise me. She'll still respond in a way, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that coming. Uh, she'll, she'll share things like, oh, I didn't know that about your past. Oh, I, I didn't expect that from you. And, and I learned these things about my wife. Now, is that a bad thing? I don't think so. Because if I literally knew everything about my wife... If, if I knew every thought that she had before she spoke it, if I knew every placement of every atom, not only would that be slightly creepy, <laughs> but it would also hinder the progression of love. What keeps our relationship alive and vibrant and passionate and moving is that there are questions aching to be asked. There are dimensions to her yet to be fully understood and explored. Mystery is the lifeblood of intimacy. And what if God allows us to go through those seasons of life where we have questions and uncertainties and even doubts because it's God's way of saying this is an invitation and an opportunity for you to pursue and to ask and to seek and to knock and to pound on the door of faith and to bring those questions to me. And in the process, what you'll discover is that I am the answer. After a long night of wrestling, Jacob didn't have all the answers. He was in pain. His hip was thrown out of socket, but he had encountered God in ways he had never had before. And God said, what is your name, Jacob? And he said, Jacob, which means dirty, sneaky thief. You guys know that. Your new name, God says, will be what? Israel, he who wrestles with God. We come from a long line of sweaty luchadors. (laughs) Deep in our DNA is this longing to understand and explore the beautiful mystery of God. And when we go through those times of doubt, it is an opportunity for us to go all in. Read, research, pray, weep, talk to Pastor Matt, listen to a podcast, go back to scripture, like Habakkuk, get up on your mountain, 
pray like Jesus on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? It's through the agony of doubt, through the pain and loss of struggles and asking of questions that life is born, resurrection awaits for you on the other side of your doubt. So I, I can't leave here today without sharing at least one Vanuatu story. Um, did, has Matt ever shared with you Bislama, the language Bislama? A little bit. So that's the language they speak there. Um, Vanuatu, as you know, is like super primitive. We lived in huts, no electricity, no running water. I shared a hut with Matt. And so we got there and we had to learn this language, Bislama, which is like caveman meets Tarzan meets pig Latin. And uh, so like the words slingshot, which they use to kill things for food, they'd say, himi, elastic, blong, shoot him, pigeon. Um, or I love this one, the word piano. You, you wouldn't say piano. You would say, himi, one big fella box, where he got white teeth, blong him. Mo, he got black teeth, blong him. Mo, suppose you kill him, teeth, blong him. Himi, sing out, long you. That's the word piano. So you can imagine, like, me, me and Matt are there. And we're trying to teach the Bible in Bislama, and we come across the word propitiation. We're like, oh my gosh. Right? So at night, we would, we would sit around the fire, because there really isn't anything else to do in Vanuatu. And we would, they call it talk story. And the, the, the people who lived there, they'd share with us stories, amazing stories. And then sometimes we'd share stories with them. And one night, one of them asked me, he said, hey, Dom, what is your favorite place in America? And without even thinking, I probably should have thought this through, but I didn't. Without even thinking, I said, Disneyland. <laughs> and I knew I was way over my head because they're like, okay, tell us about it. <laughs> how, do you, how do you describe Disneyland to, to people who like, live in kind of a Stone Age kind of context? How, where do you even begin? And so I'm like, well, I guess start with the, the castle, right? That, that's the first thing you see when you go to Disneyland. So I said, there's a place in California and called Disneyland, when you walk in, you see this big castle. But the problem is in Bislama, there is no word for castle. The closest they have is big fella hut. So I said, there's a, there's a big fella hut. And they're like, how big? I'm like, ah, a couple hundred feet tall or so. It's, it's huge. And immediately they're like, like minds are blown. They, this is proportions they could barely like wrap their, their heads around. And then I talked about, well, okay, there's also, you can't talk about Disneyland and not talk about Mickey. So I'm like, there's a... There's a mouse <laughs> who lives there, and his name is Mickey. But the problem is, in their language, there is no word for mouse. The, the closest they had was big fella rat, which was their worst nightmare. Rats, rats are a huge problem in Vanuatu. So I said, OK, there's a place in California called Disneyland. It has a big fella hut, and there's a big fella rat that lives there. And they're like, how big? I'm like, he's 10 feet. 12 feet tall, I could just see their eyes like, oh my gosh, this is scary. I'm like, no, 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 it's not a real rat. There's someone who is inside the rat. So he eats people? No, 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 he like talks and possession. Like what, what? this is so weird. And so I could see I was getting nowhere fast. I'm like, oh, okay, there's, there's these cups, <laughs> big fella cups. And you sit inside the cups, and, and you go around and around. And, and I could just see their heads like. Whoosh. And so finally, true story, one of the guys, I'll never forget this. One of the guys, he looks at me, deadly serious. He's like, Dominic, you should never go to Disneyland. It is an evil place. And Mickey Mouse, he said, 
is a witch doctor. <laughs> I'm just laughing. I'm like, for me, it's the happiest place on earth, right? In his mind, it was a version of hell led by an evil mastermind slash rat called Mickey. You see, I was sharing something with him that to him made no sense. The doubt, doubt is kind of that way. You have a version of reality, you have a worldview, an understanding of scripture, what you've been taught in church, what you believe. But then something happens, someone comes into your life, some tragedy, some sickness, and you hear big fella hut and big fella rat, and you're like, I don't know what to do with this. And as I'm kind of stumbling over my words as we're sitting around that fire, I ended by saying, well, you know, this is so hard to describe, you guys. I think the only way you could see what I'm experiencing and what I've seen with my own eyes is for you to see it with your own eyes too. What would be the answer to their doubt? What would be the answer to their uncertainty? It would mean pack up their bags, get on a plane, get some clothes on. That would help. In Vanuatu, they don't wear a lot. Fly to LA, get in a car, drive to Disneyland, see it for themselves. Get a picture with Mickey, a selfie, hashtag witch doctor vibes. Like, <laughs> the only way that this doubt could be redeemed is through sacrifice, through travel, through journey, through effort. And what if the same thing is true of us? Those seasons in our life where we find ourselves spiritual vertigo, confused, the ground is shaking. I don't know, God, what I believe. I'm struggling with these things. I have a hope in you. I believe that you're good, but now this has happened to me, cancer and loss and unemployment and confusion about the Bible. I don't know what to do. And it's in that space and it's at that time where God is saying, I wanna take you deeper and further than you've ever gone. Pack up your bags, get on the plane, wrestle with me, go up on the mountain. Don't abandon your faith. Don't idolize your doubt. Don't pretend that it's not true, but wrestle with me. Be honest, be truthful, go deep. And in the process, that doubt can be redeemed, and you may not have all the answers at the end, and chances are you'll walk away with a limp, but like Jacob, your name will be changed. I don't know why I don't have the answers, Lewis said, but I do know this. You yourself are the answer. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand, shall we? Let's pray together. God, I thank you for this beautiful truth that you're with us in all seasons, the highs and lows, the ebbs and flows, the fluctuations of faith and doubt. And even when it feels like our faith is failing, you never will. I thank you, God, for that simple, beautiful verse. Be merciful to those who doubt because that's what you did, Jesus. <laughs> After you rose again, you gathered your disciples together, and Matthew 28 says some worshiped and some doubted. And what I love about that is that you still sent them all out. <laughs> you didn't divide the worshipers from the doubters. You didn't say, doubters, get out of here. I have no place for you. No, you sent them out to be a part of your kingdom, and the book of Acts says they turned the world upside down. 
Lord, give us a faith that is unafraid to wrestle. And I pray for my brothers and sisters today, especially for those who are going through challenging seasons, but Lord, that they could encounter you like Lewis, like Paul, like David, like Jacob, like so many others in scripture, that this could be a season in their life that they go all in. And you'll meet them and bless them and resurrect their faith into something entirely different that they never expected. Bless this beautiful community. I thank you for the impact they're making in this city. And you placed us in a city in a time, in a state where there are so many doubters. Lord, show us how we can show mercy to those who doubt that we can see something new and beautiful, revival in our time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you. It's such an honor to be with you today.